Hey everyone, how you doing? I hope you're all well. Today we have Dom on the podcast, our way forward. Dom describes himself as an NHS manager. His role within the NHS includes analysing data and statistics relating to running an efficient NHS trust. His work, he works presently for a London trust and has been at the forefront of hospital management. Although this isn't, he's not a frontline healthcare worker, but he determines how hospitals have operated over this COVID period and before. So we've got a very interesting chat going on, and this is Dom's story. Enjoy. Right, hi Dom. Hope you're well. Um, thank you for coming and doing this podcast on our way forward, and. Let's just jump right in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, my name's Dom, obviously. I work in healthcare at the moment, but um, I think uh, in terms of what we're going to talk about, um, it's important to kind of talk about my background, um, you know, where I come from, you know, my education, what have you. So, um, like yourself, um, I studied sociology or social sciences at uni. Um, undergrad and, and postgrad, um, and um, did you know did quite a bit on research methods, which I, I think when we met, um, you said you'd done something similar, um, and from that I kind of went into research uh, within sort of research organisations, higher education, doing research. So I've got a research background, um, and then my career's kind of I've fallen from one thing to the next really. So um, I had a, yeah, several years working in, in local government um, and then about 13 years ago I did my first job in, in the NHS um, working in mental health and uh, most of my roles kind of built on that sort of that academic research background, um, you know, working with, with data and, and helping services kind of improve. Um, but yeah, I've worked in all kinds of healthcare uh, organisations, so, you know, um, from you know mental health um, community services acute specialist mostly in London a lot of the big trusts in London I've worked in um, and I've worked in I worked for primary care trust um, about 10 years ago and they, I mean, they no longer exist because obviously the NHS is forever reorganizing itself um, and that was kind of the start of, when they when they closed down PCTs that was the start of um, GP commissioning so I worked with with primary care and GPs on commissioning um, and um, you know that was a bit of a learning curve but it was very useful and at the start of last year I went back into the commissioning space so um, for the uninitiated that's sort of it's kind of the it's the layer in between um, sort of NHS England and and providers of healthcare and they sort of manage the contracts for hospitals, um, they do a lot of the, the monitoring and the reviews, um, monitoring all the standards, because I mean, the NHS has got so many standards that can be measured, um, and they're always sort of adding more rather than taking them away. Um, and I suppose that's my, my area of, of specialism, really. Um, I'm, you know, uh, attention to detail with my background is kind of, that's, I, I sort of, kind of role. So, um, so obviously it's kind of, you know, the last sort of couple of years, it's been, it's almost been the battle of the graphs, hasn't it? Um, you know, data's 
been such a, a big issue in how we look at things and uh, statistics. So, um, so I guess that's sort of one of my strengths, and that I think that sort of shaped my view um, of, of the last sort of year and a half. But also, um, it, you know, it's it's given me kind of insights and access to information that perhaps not everybody else has. So um, that's been that's been really useful. So yeah, that's I mean, it's that's kind of my, my resume. Um, I don't know, you know, if you've got questions about that. Yeah. So, what what type of statistics have you been dealing with um, recently? So, um, so, so if I go back to when I when I started the role that I've sort of been doing the last couple of years, initially, um, so the NHS does, has a planning round every year where it sort of has to plan what hospitals do each year in terms of how many patients they see, um, any standards that they need to meet, etc. Um, so I started working on that at the beginning of last year because um, it's sort of it's you know the, the healthcare year is based around the fiscal year. So we we started doing that uh, last January and did our first draft submission at the, at the, at the start of March um, for for the area that I cover in in, in London. Um, and uh, but yeah, we we never kind of did the final submission because everything was sort of put on hold. Um, Right. But it, it was it was useful because it kind of, you know, it gave me another another overview of how healthcare is managed because I sort of spent the last 10 years, you know, working in senior roles in hospitals, um, run, you know, helping run them um, as well. So um, it was it was a good opportunity to take a step back um, from the cold face. I suppose it's a different kind of role. It's a bit it's a bit like um, I suppose it's a bit like, you know, doing the theory, whereas working in hospitals is applying the theory. So, um so yeah, that's how we started. But then obviously, you know, um, early March, things were getting a bit strange. Um, and, uh, you know, we we were told at the start of March to, you know, to, we were going to have to start working from home, um, which was fine for me because I'd, I think I'd, I'd, I'd done a contract where I'd been traveling, um, you know, up to the Midlands, um, you know, staying away from home. So I was kind of, you know, I hadn't spent much time with my family. So obviously everybody was in a different position when, when that happened, um, you know, for some people, you know, not, not being able to work or not being able to go to the office or wherever your place of work is, was, was you know, was, everyone was in different circumstances. For me, it, it was fine. I, I didn't have an issue with it. Um, I was quite happy, to be honest. My commute yeah. was like two, two hours either way. So, um, so that, that that was fine. But, um, but yeah, in that change, it meant that because we weren't, we weren't doing, you know, the usual plan round uh, for the NHS that, um, you know, my director said, well, you know, this obviously this we're going to start measuring, um, you know, information around COVID cases, uh, admissions in hospitals. And so, um, you know, the head of the organization wants us to to build a report um, and because I, you know, build so many different reports in different in, in different different roles before. Um, I was kind of, you know, champion at the bit, uh, quite quite keen to get involved because, I, you know, I like to try new things. Um so that's kind of that. That was then what I moved into um, in, in, in my work there. Um, so I built, you know, the first sort of COVID report for the for the organisation. Um, so, so, so sorry, but before um, it hit, you so oh, your your previous workload, they basically just said leave that alone, and we want you to concentrate on COVID. Now is is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. pretty much. I mean, because um, I mean. 
you know, I'm, I'm perhaps not as old as I sound. I mean, the, a lot of the work I've done is contract work. So that's why I've, I've kind of got to move around a lot in the NHS and work in different organisations. So um, I'm the sort of person that won't say no to, to things and I like to try new things. So um, it doesn't mean, I mean, everybody was affected um, within that organisation. Um, some more than others, uh, you know, depending on which roles you took. And, um, but, you know, I'll kind of come on to that in a moment. But um, so, yeah, uh, I think because of the team we were, the people we were, we were asked to lead on this. Um, uh, yeah, and that's kind of, it, it's, I suppose it kept me in a job in a way. Um, ironically, you know, obviously I'd rather the circumstances were different. Um, but yeah, that, so that's what I started working on. So it was drawing upon some of the new data sets that were being collected, you know, whether it be submitted by hospitals or by, you know, public health, um, you know, some of the data that we still look at today that's being published and trying to combine that with some of the existing data that, you know, that we're familiar with around, you know, a demand on emergency care, um, which includes things like hospital occupancy, um, you know, the, a lot of the usual measures that you would kind of look at to, to kind of to test the temperature, you know, in the healthcare setting. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of what I moved on to, really, uh, sort of yeah, early March and, um, you know, the, the the number of things that we measured grew. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was a strange time. Yeah, did did they ask you to um, look at data for in a national perspective or were you concentrating on London and the southeast? Uh, it was mainly London. Um, yeah, it was mainly our patch in London. I mean, as as time progressed, we did sort of do a bit of benchmarking to look at the whole of, whole of London different because it's sort of divided into five different areas. Um, so, we, yeah, we wanted to obviously compare them. But initially we were just focusing on our patch, all the hospitals within our patch. Right. Um, yeah, but um, but I just I, I guess I kind of yeah remember, um, you know, I guess we all have memories of how it started and we all had our own journey. Um, but obviously, you know, I remember seeing on you know the videos on social media from china and and we were kind of following it in the press and i think um you know those yeah you know, at the time i thought that you know it's china those videos they, they don't look real um they were kind of grainy people falling on the street and you know before they hit the ground their arm came out <laughs> you know yeah. so i just thought well that's that's fake you know the pictures are fake the videos are fake so i thought this is all a bit strange um and then obviously it moved it moved to italy um and, um, you know, I was seeing I was following the news in Italy and I was seeing that at the time they were saying, you know, the people that they're identifying as having this new new illness were, you know, averaging 80 years of age and had, you know, one or two or three comorbidities. So, it, you know, I I thought, you know, what's what's all the fuss about, really? Um, and that and that didn't really change, um, to be honest, even though, um, you know, obviously the messaging was quite quite to contrary and quite um quite conflicting so um so you, so yeah, you, I mean, you were quite skeptical from from the beginning yeah definitely um i, I think you know i think perhaps you know and, and again i think it's that may be to do with you know my background um in, in the way I sort of analyze things the fact that you know i think we're i'm perhaps a bit of a contrarian anyway um and and I, yeah that's it's a difficult question to to, to sort of pinpoint why do some people question it from the start and why have some people, you know, gone along with it. Um, and, and uh, yeah, and it's, it's all down to the individual, isn't it? I think. Um, so, but for me personally, um, 
No, I wasn't. I wasn't worried really at all. I mean, I think people around you, if people around you start to fret, and it, obviously it can rub off on you. Um, and I guess there were people that had lots of people around them panicking um, because the messaging was sort of so hard hitting. Um, but no, I was fine. I think um, my my worry was, I think I started to get a cold in that first week and uh, they asked me to go back into the office. And my main worry was that um, they might not let me to go to work <laughs> yeah. uh, because I've got a cold because of the, you know, the paranoia uh, around around what was happening. Um, were, were they asking well, you to do, you know, the PCR tests or lateral flow no, tests at that point? No, because I think, you know, if you, I don't know if you remember um, at the start, it, you know, the, the narrative was, you know, there's a shortage of tests and, you know, Matt Hancock set his target, didn't he, of um, was 100,000 tests a day by the end of April. So, yeah. um, no, that wasn't it. Wasn't happening then. Um, I guess it must have been happening, uh, you know, in in hospitals in sections of the community, because um, obviously that was how we. That's the main way that we we I think that we that we capture the numbers. I mean, um, obviously when it came to some of the, the you know the deaths that happened, you know, the tests weren't necessarily required. I guess there weren't as many then. Um, so that, you know, it, it may have been dependent on uh, you know what went on the death certificate. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously we all kind of sat at home. Uh, well, I don't know. Some of us might have better things to do, but you know, we're, I was watching the news, watching the press briefings, and it, it was more just to kind of be informed as to what the messaging was and obviously how that would impact in the work I was doing. So I don't know. I kind of I felt one step removed and. Um, you know, I was never a fan of uh, of Matt Hancock anyway, and Boris Johnson. So um, I had a you know an innate distrust of anything they said, as I think everybody should do. Yes. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so I think I approached it critically. I don't know. Um, yeah, so I, I really wasn't worried um, at all. Um, you know, I'm not just saying that. It, it's just you know I kind of I prayed about it, and and all of a sudden I was just like, well. You know, there's nothing you've got nothing to fear. And and actually it wasn't just kind of it wasn't just my faith, it was also just from the information I was seeing, um, and what you know, what I was reading. Um the the information was kind of out there really. It was just the information that you know you kind of had to go looking for it. You know, um the, the BBC that, weren't forthcoming, were yeah. they? No, exactly. And um although even the press briefings, I mean I you know I mean, some of the things I'm going to talk about is sort of, you you know, you go back and you revisit things and you um, and you look at, you know, what the messaging was. Because obviously initially it was, you know, we're, you know, we're going to take it on the chin. We, you know, um, we're going to build up herd immunity in, in the uh, in the yeah. population. And, and, and then and I think they were saying, you know, this is a it's a mild illness. Most people will recover. And then a couple of weeks later, it was like, well, you know, this virus is so deadly, it could overwhelm any healthcare system in the world. So, you know, that was in the space of a couple of weeks. Um, but at the time, I think maybe, you know, unless you were completely objective, it, it was hard not to get swept in some up in some of the messaging. And obviously people still are. Um, so. So, yeah, um, it was it was it was a very strange time, wasn't it? Yeah. Do, do you know what, Dom, can I just play you um, a little sound clip of Chris Whitty. Um, this was in March of last year. Um, it, it's just what you were saying there. I, it, it's, it's a minute and a half. Look, I, I, I'll just play. This is Chris Whitty in, in March of last year. All right. It is a very serious epidemic. 
But equally, the fact that, that actually the great majority of people will not die from this. And I'll just repeat something I said right at the beginning, because I think it's worth reinforcing. Most people, are, well, a significant proportion of people will not get this virus at all at any point in the epidemic, which is going to go on for a long period of time. <laughs> of those who do, some of them will get the virus without even knowing it. They will have the virus with no symptoms at all, asymptomatic carriage, and we know that happens. Of those who get symptoms, the great majority, probably 80%, will have a mild or moderate disease, might be bad enough for them to have to go to bed for a few days, not bad enough for them to have to go to the doctor. An unfortunate minority will have to go as far as hospital, but the majority of those will just need oxygen and will then leave hospital. And then a minority of those will end up having to go to severe uh, and critical care, and some of those, sadly, will die. But that's a minority. It's 1% it's or possibly even less than 1% overall. And even in the highest risk group, uh, this is significantly less than 20%, i.e. the great majority of people, even the very highest groups, if they catch this virus, will not die. Yeah, no, that's, so that's exactly what I was referring to. So I think yeah. Boris said something similar um, at the start of March. And obviously, Chris Whitty, as you as you played, echoed that sentiment. I think even Patrick Balance. So, um, but, you know, I don't know who was presenting it, but as they said, they've kind of gone back and listened to it. And it's obviously it's reappeared. We've been reminded, um, you know, I guess mainly on social media. Um, but, yeah, I guess the key message is a lot of the information that 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 perhaps we should have been paying attention to was already there. It was just that they also gave out different messaging that conflicted that. And I think, you know, it caused confusion and perhaps people's, you know, default position was to, you know, is self-preservation and, you know, they respond more to fear. Um, exactly. Than, you know, yeah. And, I, and as, as we've seen, um, you know, that's been a big part of the strategy. Um, you know, the, is it, yeah, is it Sage, um, body who kind of well would led to believe advised the government i don't know they're probably telling them what to do but um is it spot yeah the spy b the behavioral scientists um you know that was kind of their advice was to to ramp up the emotional fear and messaging to you know to control the population um and i think we can we can see that's played out really um with the way that they changed tack and you know the you know the the press beef briefings and you know, the hard-hitting mantras, um, you know, once they introduce lockdown and, uh, you know, stay home, and protect the NHS, all that, um, you know, it was carefully choreographed and and it was pre-planned. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if a lot of people know, you know, but, you know, the contracts that they awarded, you know, the advertising contracts they awarded for, um, for you know, for that, with that messaging was, you know, they signed those contracts, in, you know, weeks before lockdown. So, really? you know, they've kind of, yeah, so... You know, you know, you could say it was a contingency plan, but you know, I think that's giving too much benefit of the doubt. I think, um, I think lockdown was always was always the plan, really. Um, and them saying that, you know, let's go for herd immunity. I'm not quite. Again, was it to confuse the population? You know, I don't think they meant it. Um, and you know, when you speak to people since, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, they should have locked down sooner, harder, and faster. Um, a lot of people say that um, because they're, you know, they're led to believe that that actually the reason that, you know, the first wave was was so bad was because we didn't lock down soon enough. Um, but, you know, I I completely disagree with that. And I'll kind of I will come on to that, um, you know, in a moment, really. But um, I think sort of 
One thing I wanted to touch on, um, again, from, from the role that I'm doing or that I was doing at the time, um, you know, obviously some of the information that I saw, although a lot of this information is published, um, you know, just kind of the messaging, not just to the public, but also within the NHS to, to hospitals um, was, you know, they were told to to start, you know, cancelling all non-urgent treatment. Um, the, all hospitals were asked to, you know, to discharge patients, sort of, you know, speed up the discharge process to, they wanted to um, to clear, you know, 30,000 beds, um, you know, with the anticipation of, you know, a wave of, patients with respiratory illnesses um so that's what they did did they send all of those patients um well this is a good question i you know i tried to look at this and obviously um some went to to care a lot went to care homes and there was that narrative around patients being discharged you know to care homes with covid or without being tested um you know i think some probably were sent home some went i think some even went to hotels um obviously depended on on their care needs but um you know that that's unheard of um, to be able to discharge that many patients. Obviously, the, the justification for it was, well, you know, the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed, and you know, and then at the same time, they had those, um, you know, the Nightingale hospitals there. You know, they erected within a very short space of time, um, so all kind of built up this picture of, you know, an imminent, overwhelming demand put on the NHS, um, which it didn't materialise and. You know, again, I was able to see this quite early on um, and it, it didn't quite add up um, why we would, you know, we were doing all this. We were discharging all these patients, cancelling all these treatments. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, like it was all kind of in, it's anticipatory, wasn't it, in a way? Um, well, that's the way it was presented. Yeah. Um, but then that wave of patients never arrived. But then obviously they didn't tell us this. There were no all we saw on the news was, well, you know, the number of cases, the number of deaths. We weren't seeing any counterbalancing measures. We weren't seeing the fact that, you know, 50% less people were, were turning up at A&E, um, you know, for whatever reason, whether it be they were too scared or, um, you know, something like, well, the thing is with, with a lot of these measures, there's always a, there's always a counter argument and it's, um, you know, people will just say, oh, it's because people weren't going out that, you know, less people getting injured. Well, that's, that's not the case. I mean, if you look at um, even sort of the, the past year, um, while we've been in lockdown, you know, we the, the number of people going to hospital for for injuries hasn't really decreased. So, so you know, I don't buy any of those those arguments. What I'm seeing is that we that we emptied the hospitals, we stopped treating a lot of patients, um, we cancelled a lot of their treatments, and also patients cancelled their own. They were too scared to go to hospital, um, but the hospitals were half full. Um, you know, I think, you know, normally, you know, coming out of winter, the NHS, you know, bed occupancy, we're looking, we're looking at 95%, probably 99, 90, 95%. That's um, in, an, in an average year and on, you know, like 2019 or before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's kind of, that's what it was looking like. Um, you know, I remember um, sort of the the winter before, sort of winter 2019, when in theory this virus was circulating, but again, I'll come on to that. Um, you know, the hospital I was working in, I was doing some of the winter plans, um, looking, you know, around bed occupancy and stuff. And, you know, we might be 98, 99% of adult beds occupied. It was kind of really one in, one out. Um, so that's, you know, that's a usual winter. We've seen that for many winters, I suppose. Um, so that's normal. The, the hospitals literally get full up to near capacity on a normal winter. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and I think everybody knows that. You know, you you've seen the collages of um, you know, headlines from previous winters and it's the same every winter and it's probably just gets worse because the number of available beds has decreased over the you know over the years. Um, so to go from sort of the the the, the normal and it, it may have been a bad winter, but every winter's bad. Um, sort of ninety ninety five percent in in winter to spring, where you know I think on average bed occupancy was you know for those three months where we were locked down it was around sixty percent. Um, wow. Uh, and but then. And that's 60% of the number of beds that were open and they closed about 10,000 beds as well um, because they, so, you know, I guess if you compare it to normal levels, we, we are looking at half all hospitals on average, um, you know, in the middle of a, of a pandemic, um, it doesn't quite add up. Uh, and I think, what, you know, one of the reasons they, they, they had to close beds is, you know, staff went off sick. Um, and I think, you know, again, um, you know, everybody's life was all sort of turned upside down, you know, Although in theory schools were meant to have stayed open, very few people sent their children to school. A lot of people would, if they had the opportunity, they would they would not go to work. They 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 work from home, or you know staff may go off sick. Um, so yeah, sickness levels were higher than normal as well. Um, but obviously the narrative would be that you know they're off with COVID. Um, but yeah, so that obviously added a bit of pressure uh, on the NHS. But then they didn't. We didn't have the patients. You know, we didn't have the throughput because you know the hospitals were a lot less full. So, um, so yeah, that didn't add up. <laughs> you know, so I, I'd imagine that if you know if there was a new killer disease um, that that was going to overwhelm the NHS, that, that that the hospitals would be, you know, bursting at the seams, and you know, A and E volumes would would be through the roof. Um, which, well, it's happening now, but it, it wasn't happening then. So. I mean, I, I think my initial my initial feeling was that that it was a complete overreaction. That was what I that was my first thought around what was going on. That we'd we got it horribly wrong uh, in the NHS, and um, and you know we're gonna and we'll pay the price further down the line for you know the backlog that we've created and um, you know the, the number of people that you know obviously because access was to GPs was harder. I mean, it's not that it's particularly easy now. Um, but a lot of you know a lot of illnesses would go untreated. A lot of screening programs weren't happening. So um, you know, c- cancers missed. Um, I think like you know probably the only measure where we did see the increase was you know calls to one one one. But that's you know or, um, because obviously people are worried. Like you know anybody with a cough or a sniffle back then they probably thought oh dear have I got coronavirus I need to I need to ring the NHS to, you know to find out do I need to go to hospital. Um, we, did, we saw a rise in, in calls, you know, to one one one, but we, you know, we didn't see a corresponding rise in, you know, in anything else. So, um, so that that in itself speaks volumes. And I, so I thought, well, okay, uh, they're going along with it. Uh, you know, they're not going to lose face. Um, we're, you know, okay, fortunately things weren't as bad as they said they were going to be. Um, it was an overreaction, and yeah, obviously lockdown ended. It took longer than we we. Well, they said it would, you know, three weeks to flatten the curve going on two years. Um, mm. But, yeah, it didn't quite play out like that, did it? Um, what what and, were your superiors, what were your bosses saying um, at the time? You know, they, they obviously they're in, in the hospitals. They could see that they weren't at capacity. What, what, what was the general kind of feeling well, that was coming down from? 
this yeah i guess this is where it's tricky because um because a lot of us were working from home and i'm not saying that we didn't communicate but you know it's a different kind of different scenario than what we're used to and even um you know even all the teams in hospitals would the ones that didn't need to be in would be working from home and some of them still are and even now in hospitals um you know when teams meet they even meet you know they don't meet face to face now even some of the teams so obviously there was that separation of people um and and i think immediately um a lot of the kind of alternative media were kind of were ready to go as well i think um you know there were things a lot of these alternative views on what was happening were already out there um so and a lot of a lot of sort of yeah a lot of clinicians commentators weren't really able to to speak out um or to discuss and I, you know and that was by design as well i mean um you know you know since found out you know that you know guidelines were issued you know by ofcom to broadcasters you know to to ensure that if they did have anybody on on their programs questioning the um you know the public health uh, policies that they you know they were they were told they had to you know challenge them um and obviously they were very selective about who they had on their programs so um and obviously the bbc you know the mainstream media uh, a lot of that messaging was was all going you know pointing in one direction um so I, I don't know it's a bit of a blur um who yeah who i spoke to really and i guess for me it was more a case of i was still trying to get my head around what was going on as well i mean i knew something wasn't quite right um but yeah i was i suppose i was more interested in finding out what was going on than perhaps questioning people because i could see um that people were afraid so even kind of the director i was working with he was like he was so quick to like start you know buying his masks buying his you know hand sanitizer like hand sanitizer you couldn't get it for love nor money could you at the time right. so i suppose i didn't i didn't want to kind of start these conversations with people when i could see that they they were you know a lot of them were buying into the narrative and, and i kind of with hindsight perhaps i you know i wish i have since tried to talk about these things but um perhaps at the time i didn't feel that i could and i guess you know so in that way i a lot of people were affected that perhaps wanted to speak out, um, but perhaps were unsure because, you know, I wasn't sure what was happening. I knew what was happening was wrong, um, but I didn't quite know how wrong it was until, you know, more time had elapsed. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I regret that now, um, but, you know, it's all a journey, isn't it? Um, well, if, and, if your yeah, bosses so, weren't, you know, if, if your bosses and, and you weren't actually in the hospitals, I mean, if you were there you could have like seen that they weren't full couldn't you and then i suppose you know because you're saying everybody was at home everybody was working from home there's that yeah there's that disconnect and yeah i suppose everyone's got the bbc on the radio and every hour you're getting those news headlines aren't you and yeah and i suppose sort of my disclaimer you know the role that i've been doing for the last couple of years i've not been based in a hospital and whilst that's been good because I don't think I would have lasted a few moments. Um, I kind of, I wish I'd been closer to the front line and that's been one of the frustrations is actually finding people who, who I can speak to. And I, you know, I have since, but not, not enough um, to know the full story, but enough to know that the narrative doesn't match. And, and the data tells me that and the anecdotes from people I've spoken to tell me that actually 
the hospitals were under pressure. Um, a lot of staff went off sick, but those those shifts were not filled with agency staff or or bank staff um, because the the need for the staffing wasn't there because the patients weren't there. Um, but yeah, so um, but yeah, in, in the report that we made, so I say we hospitals were collecting new data. We were all so we captured that. So you know the number of admissions, um, number of new patients, patients diagnosed, um, and then we were looking at the different boroughs. So we we're looking at um, the public health data on the number of cases by borough, um, and the number of deaths. Um, but we, yeah, we mainly focused on hospital deaths. But then also, you know, obviously I started to become more familiar with the Office for National Statistics and um, and their weekly death and da- uh, data. Um, and it was sort of when I went to look back at that because obviously there's a you know there's a time lag in terms of death registrations of a couple of weeks um and, and i think it that was one of the things it was kind of a light bulb moment for me is when i because they were talking about excess deaths weren't they that they sort of said excess deaths are the real measure of the impact of this pandemic yeah um and in the first wave there were a lot of excess deaths um but they didn't tell you where they were and they weren't in hospitals. The majority, in terms of the ratio, the majority, in terms of ratio of actual to expected deaths, the biggest proportion of deaths were in care homes and in, in private homes. Um, but what's even more revealing is, is when those excess deaths occurred. So we, you know, we were led to believe, and you know, that this virus was circulating for months prior to lockdown. Um, you know the stories now that it was, you know, it was present six months prior to prior to lockdown, uh, yeah. you know, parts of Europe. Um, but the but there were no excess deaths until they until they locked down. So whatever virus was circulating, whatever new illness was circulating, wasn't killing people. It was only once we locked down that people started to die in excess. So that that to me shows that you know lockdowns. I think as you know the Stanford professor, um, what's his name, Jay Bhattacharya said. You know, it's the single biggest public health mistake in history because it was the lockdowns and the associated policies that caused the excess deaths. That's my view, um, because there were no excess deaths prior to lockdown. And um, so, again, I don't know whether you're aware of that, but I, for me, that's very revealing. Um, so in, in those months running up to um, March, so, you know, for, for example, in my family we were all very ill in december 2019 um first of all i came down i had the literally the worst flu that you know i've ever had and then it hit my kids and and then um my wife got it just in the run up to christmas so i think that we had it then you know and um that yeah for me I'm I'm pretty damn sure that that was what we had to be honest. Yeah, no, um, and I, I've heard lots of people say that. Um, you know, my my household was ill apart from me, so I mean I had to look after everybody um, that Christmas. But um, yeah, no, I, I've heard people say that. Um, but again, it you know it didn't kill anybody more than than a seasonal flu, um, because I say I looked at I've looked at the excess deaths and there weren't any excess deaths. So when I say excess deaths, I mean in in terms of the level of deaths compared to the, pr- the prior five-year average, so we we weren't exceeding that five-year average in any in any of the weeks leading up to lockdown, and also in some of the um, the winter months in in the prior year. So, 
so we don't you know whether it's a new flu or whatever um it wasn't killing anybody so and the government would would have been aware of this um so it, it didn't really make any sense what they were what, the, what they were saying but obviously this is with it with hindsight um i mean my my feeling at the time and i remember saying this to people um you know these aren't excess deaths these are accelerated deaths so you know these people may well have died at some point during the year but we've speeded up their deaths with our with our poli- with our healthcare response with our public health policies um and um and also you know i didn't I didn't agree with lockdown. I mean, I thought it was a, an overreaction and obviously it was unprecedented, but it wasn't just the fact that we were asked to stay at home. It was the fact that, you know, elderly vulnerable people were discharged to, to care homes um, and, you know, their relatives couldn't see them, um, you know, and, you know, they're vulnerable people. They didn't have access to their families that I guess the care homes were overcrowded. They were understaffed. People weren't looked after properly. You know, and, it's, and it's later transpired, um, you know, there was an increase in, in do not resuscitate orders uh, put on, on all the residents or, you know, a lot of the residents, um, you know, there's evidence to back this up. Um, and even I think, you know, the, the threshold for, for do not resuscitate was lowered. Um, so if you combine a lot of those factors, you know, you're, you're going to people are going to die if they're already you know, elderly, infirm, vulnerable. Um, but not only that, um, you know, it must have been a horrible place to work, um, you know, for those staff. And they didn't have enough of them to kind of, you know, to look to look after the residents properly. Um, and, if, you know, and around them, they were seeing people die. Um, it must have been horrible to work there. Um, but then but those policies where you prevent families from seeing their relatives, you know, that takes away you know a vital part of anybody's life anyway um but if you're you know vulnerable and isolated then obviously it's going to make it even worse um but also the family's not being able to go in not you know some instances not even able to look through the window um you know it takes away kind of a level of surveillance it removes safeguards so we don't really know what happened in those care homes um so that's so not only was it inhumane it was kind of unsafe um now, a lot of the, all the care homes are uh, regulated, uh, re- registered um, with the Care Quality Commission, and they they have a program of inspections every year. They cancel all their, all their inspections, so there was nobody going in to to those care homes to actually to ha- you know the only way we would know what was happening in those care homes is from the staff in there, um, and they were probably all too afraid to speak um, to speak out and explain what happened. But we know that. You know, a large number, the biggest proportion, the biggest number of excess deaths occurred in care homes. Um, and um, it later transpired so that, um, you know, there's, there's an analyst who I've spoken to, a chap called Mark Oakford, who he's done a load of um, amazing kind of research, um, your FOIs, uh, analysis of, of, of published data. So he looked at the, the prescribing data um for you know the last however many years and he's he's kind of picked out some strange trends um around the prescription of a drug called midazolam um that and it was it was reported in the press as well i think last june but i didn't pick up on it at the time um and this is a you know it's a sedative that is used um and if it's not used if it's used in excessive quantities it can be lethal um and also it suppresses people's respiratory systems so but this is one of the prescribed drugs for people that the were, were believed to have COVID. Um, so that 
the prescribing of this drug were like increased by I don't know more than two hundred percent just before the lockdown. <laughs> so the, the you know the theory is, and I think there's anecdotes to back up this, that that the clinical guidelines that were prescribed for for care homes, I think also for hospitals, were potentially you know hastening the deaths of some of the people. So um, it's a new disease. We don't quite know. Well, we're told it's a new disease. We, we have to follow these new guidelines on how to treat it. But actually, these guidelines could be doing more harm than good. S- same in hospitals with the ventilators. You know, there were, we were told at the time that we're going to need hundreds of ventilators and, you know, they were purchased at, you know, excessive quantities, at excessive prices. But then it later transpired that, you know, the outcomes for those patients that were put on ventilators was was much worse and more likely to die because um, you have to, you know, go into an induced coma to be put on one. So, um there was a there was an increase in the number of people that went into ICUs, but again, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were more ill. It was perhaps you know we need to we need to put these patients in an ICU bed, and, and you know the definition of an ICU bed would be to have ventilators, um, you know the right equipment to be able to give these patients treatment. So just because they're in an ICU bed, it doesn't necessarily mean they were receiving that treatment. Um, so yeah. That's, you know, that's a concern. Um, and, you know, I'd like, you know, if there ever is an inquiry, um, but, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath. But these are the things that need to be looked at. Um, we, we, so we, those, we look to yeah. doctors, don't we, as people that hold positions of stature within society and we consider them to be, you know, cleverer than the average Joe. And... Just by you saying about the medazolam and the ventilators, and, and the then, resist- yeah, it just it, it's boggling my mind to be honest, Dom. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, it's it's a hard thing to grasp um, and or to accept. But then, if you kind of if you look at that alongside, you know, all the measures and in terms of um, you know the hospitals are empty, you know the Nightingale hospitals weren't used because they weren't needed. Um, the fact that nobody was dying prior prior to, well, not nobody's dying, but there's no excess deaths prior to lockdown. So, what what is it that that caused these people to die in excess? It can't be, it can't be a virus. It can't be a, a new. Well, it can't be a new. It can't just be a new disease because the new disease was already there. I mean, there might be some smart aleck who'll come along and say, oh, you know, the virus, it takes a few weeks to to come out. You know, you've got to catch it and then. You, know, you don't develop so but again like what you'd think if that was the case that they would already have that evidence to show this is what happening we, we, we would already be seeing it but we weren't we weren't really seeing it or well we were told it was happening but if you go back and look at the information you know it's not there um okay there was a rise in case there was a rise in covid cases there was a you know a number of covid deaths but um you know they don't the covid numbers don't account for all the excess and actually, I mean, you could question any COVID death, really, because most of it is based on this, you know, dodgy testing, which I'll come on to. But also, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the, you know, the people that may be, you know, that's one of the, people, the, the doctors that would sign up the death certificates, you know, pr- probably didn't even go near a care home. You know, they were, you know, they would they would sign off the, the perhaps the, the do not resuscitate orders. They would they'd sign the death certificates without even seeing the patient. You know, it might be done over the phone. Um and obviously, if we're told that there's this new disease and it has this kind of well, it's a ubiquitous disease that has, a, you know, a myriad of symptoms that actually 
already exist in other illnesses, um, then you know the likelihood may be that it's going to be put down as a COVID death, even though it may just be something else. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. When I started to look at the the death trends and where they happened, when they happened, that really that was a light bulb moment for me. Um, and also the fact that you know nobody I knew was getting ill. Um, and a lot of the people who I associated with weren't really and haven't followed any of these guidelines because, well, one, we don't agree with them, but yeah, um, we didn't do them at the start and we've, you know, we touch wood, we've been fine. So, um, and, and again, the messaging, you know, obviously once they did ease lockdown, um, that, you know, obviously they had all these other measures that they introduced, which again were kind of nonsensical con- contradictory um you know things like you know the social distancing um you know wearing you know the mask mandates when you know months prior they said masks don't work um so none of it made any sense so like why am i going to follow these rules um that make no sense to me um yeah and even i mean you mentioned uh, i think you might have mentioned um or somebody did you know asymptomatic transmission um i mean it's unheard of um Again, it's just, it's almost like, a, you know, it's a contradiction in terms in a way. How can you transmit an illness without any symptoms? How can you even be ill without any symptoms? It's just, it's not anything that we would ever thought about before. So they're introducing all these new concepts that actually don't make any sense. Um, they're you know, changing they're, definitions and ideals that have been there for decades, if not hundreds of years, weren't they? Yeah, and um, I think, yeah, now that... I think that brings me on to what I was going to talk about next, really. So, um, yeah, because obviously, you know, a few months in of questioning the narrative, you also then you start to kind of look back at what what may have happened in years gone by. And, you know, a lot of the alternative media was doing that as well. Um, you know, if you look at, um, you know, previous in inverted commas pandemics, um, if you look at the, you know, the swine flu pandemic, I mean, I don't even remember it, you know, when it, Apparently it happened in 2009, but it never really got off the ground. Um, you know, but it you know transpires that the World Health Organization changed the definition of a pandemic. So, you know, you might say, well, this is not a pandemic. Well, actually, it, it probably is a pandemic uh, according to their the, the definition they changed in you know 10 years ago. Um, I think where they they took out you know the sentence around you know excess number of deaths. So as long as you've got lots of cases of something across the globe, you can declare it's a pandemic. Um, I mean, they didn't declare this pandemic until I think it was the 11th of March last year. So, um, yeah, so it was quite late in the day that they actually declared it a pandemic. But what enabled them to do that was the fact that they'd they'd changed the definition um, 10 years prior with the swine flu pandemic, which was like a mini version of COVID, I guess, Um, the way it sort of played out. They, you know, fast track drugs and, and then the drugs were, you know, were, I think, you know, had not, not very rigorous testing and, you know, people developed narcolepsy and various uh, neurological problems from taking these drugs. So, you know, it's it's kind of like we've been here before, but um, obviously this is on a much grander scale. Um, so that was, yeah, 2009. Um, and then again, through, you know, perhaps picking the, picking up through the alternative media, some of the, some of the other things, the other documents out there, again, if you quote them, you be, you know, you call the conspiracy theorists, but the fact they exist, things like the, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation's um, 
lockstep uh, uh, future scenarios, which pretty much foretold a lot of what was going to happen 10 years prior. Um, it's just all a bit, you know, too too much of a coincidence, which after the last two years, I no longer believe in coincidences. Exactly. Um, and then, um, and then there's, yeah, I think Event 201, uh, I don't know if you've, if you've heard of Event 201, but it was sort yep. of, uh, um, yeah, but yeah, the, you know, the pandemic simulation exercise, I remember watching the highlights back and I had to check the dates. I thought, what, is this happening now? No, actually, this happened before COVID. You know, they did this in the October the year before. That's um, it. Yeah, and it was kind of, but then again, um, it happened on the same day as, you know, some world military games, which happened in Wuhan. And again, it's sort of building up this narrative that, you know, that Wuhan was the the source of this of this new virus. Um, you know, all this, you know, this theory that escaped from a lab, which at the time, um, you know, we were called, you know, anybody who mentioned that were called conspiracy theorists that, you know, their stories were suppressed. But then, you know, but again, it's sort of, but it was out there. It was put out there um, that Wuhan was the epicenter at the start. And that's where the virus is, you know, originated. Um, but then obviously a year later, it's kind of, it's okay to talk about it now. And, you know, people have gone back to Wuhan to try and find out what happened in theory. So it's building up this story, um, isn't it, of that all feeds into the narrative that there's this new new virus that came from China. Um, you, that's, just, that's bring, just bring back to that event 201, Um uh, Near, near the time, I, I remember seeing a little snippet of Bill Gates, and he was being interviewed. And um, this was obviously before it all happened. And he he was asked what his um, favourite book of the summer was. And he, he, he I, I remember seeing the video very clearly because I actually like bought the book afterwards. And it was called "How to Lie with Statistics" by Daryl yes, Huff. Yeah. yeah. And that was yeah. the book that he recommended as his summer read, literally just before he did Event 201. There you go. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess that was the one that you were going to mention. You know, there's pictures of him with that book. Um, yeah. That's, um, you know, that's that's been happening for the last two years. Um, the way data is, is presented, um, you know, to, to, to tell a story, to, to support a narrative is, you know, it's been very clever. Um, it's, it's genius, really. Um you know, and even, you know, you, I mean, I, I try and take the same data and, and weave a different story, but there's always an, there's always a, a counter narrative, or, you know, counter analysis ready. Uh, it's all kind of it's all there. So um, I think a lot of it is down to how you want to perceive it, really. Um, but, yeah, I mean, obviously he was involved in him and his uh, philanthropic uh, foundation were involved in uh, Event 201, along with um you know, the World Economic Forum and, and John Hopkins University. Yeah. Um, you know, those names, you know, they've cropped up again and again over the last couple of years, whether it be, um, you know, John Hopkins University with all, you know, the data that they, they, they push out around around COVID. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're not to be surprised, really. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, uh, but again, it's all, it's all about building up that narrative of... This new, this new virus, this new disease spreading across the globe, and that's what's that's the cause of everything. That's you know we we, we have to blame it on nature. Um, it's got nothing to do with our response. You know we, you know it's, it's beyond our control. Um, but you know whereas I think it's 
it's, it's, it's the complete opposite. But um, so yeah, um, very interesting. Um, so yeah, then so obviously you know we you know we came out of lockdown and um, yeah, so the, the masks were a bit of a red flag to me um, because I just thought that's ludicrous. I'm not wearing a mask and you know. Um, I'm going to, you know, how, how, you know, obviously had to find out how to get around wearing one. And then it became apparent, you know, you just say that you're exempt, um, whether you are and you aren't. And it's, you know, it's, and, and those people that would be exempt from wearing a mask are the people that in theory would be more vulnerable to the illness. So it's kind of, it's counterintuitive. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, I've got, say I've got asthma or I've got respiratory illness, so, um, or condition, so I, I can't wear a mask, but, you've also got a condition that would perhaps make you more susceptible to this disease. Um, whereas, you know, I know people that, that have, you know, have those illnesses that they haven't worn a mask and, you know, they've been fine. Um, you know, they've never been in better health. So it, it just doesn't make any sense. None of it makes any sense, but I think that's sort of the intention really. Um, but yeah, obviously they, during that time, they also increased the, the level of testing that they were doing. Um, that kind of went through the roof, which, you know, the more you look for something, the more, the more you find it. So we shouldn't be surprised if we're doing, you know, a million tests a day that we're going to have a certain number of cases. Um, and, and, but again, you know, the whole, the whole PCR testing and, and the whole, the whole question around, you know, what's the false positive rate and you've got, um, you know, Dominic Raab coming out saying, Oh, you know, only like 93% of the tests are false positives and, um, and I remember at the time um, you had uh, yeah, Mike Eden. He was, you know, appearing on, on Julie Hartley Brewer's talk radio quite a few times. And that was the thing that he was talking about a lot. Um, you know, the, what's, you know the, the false positive rate. And it's, it's um, yeah. And I think, again, I, I now looking back, I think, that, again, I think that's a distraction. Um, um, I don't know. He's, he's changed his tune since then. Um, but actually, you know, the false positive rate is is not really something perhaps we should have focused on. We perhaps should have focused more around the tests and when they were made and and, and how they work. Um, because Did you tests... have any access to that information, like the cycle threshold that it was set at and, and uh, you know, anything to do with that? Um, not, it's not something I looked at greatly. Um, I mean, I, you know, I looked at the some of the guidelines and you know it's it's there in black and white that you know this this test can't you can't test it can't tell you whether you're infectious or not so it, it can't tell you whether you're contagious or whether you're ill I mean well you don't need a test to tell you you're ill but the test that's the test is it's just a test for um you know genetic material um and the the primer sequences they're using this test you know it later transpires that um you know that what they're searching for, um, these sequences, I think there's 90 matching sequences in, in the human genome. So it's, it's testing for something that potentially already exists in, in our bodies anyway. Um, and that, you know, it's not testing for a virus because when they created these tests, um, when the paper, I mean, PCR has been around for a long time, um, but when they, you know, when the, I think it was Coleman and Dawson, when they, this, you know, the, the paper they put out, to get the test signed off and it was in it was in January so the, the tests were approved before the pandemic was declared like two months prior but even if you you know if you look in in the paper it says that these these tests were created in the absence of any 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 virus samples so they're not actually creating a test based on on a, on a whole virus it's just based on 
um, you know, different sequences in, in, in theory is in, in that virus. But it was a, it was kind of they used a computer generated model to build this um, to build the sequence for the virus. So, you know, that should ring alarm bells already. But, you know, they've never had this virus like none of us. Have, we've never actually seen the virus, have we? I mean, we've seen all these computer generated pictures, but has anybody actually ever seen it under a microscope? Um, so, yeah, so so when we talk about the false positive rate, I mean, one could argue that actually, you know, all of the positives are false because they're not, what are they testing for? Um, and actually anybody who may have a cold or flu can test positive. So I'm sure we all, and you don't even have to have symptoms to test positive. So again, um, but obviously that's what's, you know, the, the tests are, are what have driven, it's what's driven this pandemic really um it's all been about numbers isn't it you know number of cases number of hospitalizations and obviously you know and then there's this this narrative around people um catching covid in hospital um but then if you think about it people who go to hospital are more likely to be ill obviously um they're more likely to be tested because you know they're tested on admission um if they're going in, you know, actually, if they're going in for a, a, a treatment and they test positive, they probably won't allow them to come to hospital. But, um, but yeah, everybody is tested on admission, tested regularly while they're in there, you know, because we've all heard of people who have gone into hospital for another condition, test positive, and end up on a COVID ward. Um, yeah. So this narrative around people catching, you know, that catching COVID in hospital, I think is is a yeah, it's a mistake. Um, but obviously, it's then led to hospitals being reconfigured. So you've got co- you know you've got COVID wards. You have to have social distancing in hospitals, so that reduces the capacity. It impacts on the patient flow. So this whole narrative around you know the the contagiousness of this virus has had so many you know ra- ramifications for for the way that we you know that we deliver healthcare as well. Um, and it's and it's certainly not and I, yeah. I don't think well we've we've not managed to prevent anybody from you know we we say that we've saved lives but but we haven't because you know we've had mass excess deaths one of the worst death rates in Europe so um and the other, you know obviously the, the other narrative was around you know there's a shortage of PPE um so when it comes to the second wave like, so when when did you start seeing that happen the you know the mask were, was a bit of a red was it was a red line for me and then then when obviously they remember they introduced the tiers um you know with yep. different tiers i think you know my area was in initially was in tier one um and i think london was in tier two but again I, you know because i because i had access to the data i mean we all do but i knew where to look it, the, even the way that you know areas were put into tiers just didn't add up um it just seemed very arbitrary and i think went into because we had a lockdown didn't we just um they announced it on halloween and it started on on bonfire night um last year i mean all these yeah. dates seem to have some significance when they when they introduce things um and then when when we came out of that brief lockdown when we didn't really i think my area went from tier one to tier four um so it just didn't that didn't make any sense either um to be honest and then obviously there was all these you know this this thing around christmas and um just uh you know obviously messing with people's lives really and ramping up the fear um 
disrupting people's livelihoods, their businesses, um, well, small businesses. I mean, big businesses have, have benefited. And, you know, if you look at look at the people that have benefited, if, you know, if they were to, if they were to be adversely affected by, by lockdowns and I don't think they would happen, you know, you just got to look at, you know, follow the money, look at who benefits. Um, so that, yeah, that, that was very frustrating. Um, that, cause you kind of thought, okay, cause obviously again, there was, you know, people like Mike Eden were saying, you know, you know, viruses don't do waves, you know, the pandemic is over. Um, but then, you know, they had to eat humble pie because, well, it came back, but again, it was sort of, it didn't, it didn't make sense because the numbers, well, again, all the numbers were kind of manufactured um, through these tests. Um, and what I noticed at the time, um, when, when with the second wave, so they didn't, they didn't have the same um, hospital policies because obviously, you know, there were lots of, you know, the, the NHS waiting list was just growing. Um, and they, so they, they, they didn't discharge people in the second wave. They carried on treating them, you know, in winter. Um, but the number of COVID patients was going up, you know, and I think at one point, um, you know, it might have made up like 40%, 50% of, of patients in hospital had COVID. Um, you know, the, the kind of the waves just uh, just seem so kind of artificial, the, the way that they peak so so rapidly. You know, I just thought this is this is to do with the, the way that they're running these tests. Um and although, you know, we had 40% of patients in hospital had COVID, we weren't necessarily seeing a rise in patients overall. So I just thought, well, this is misdiagnosis. We're just, you know, and I can see also in the data at the time, a lot of these people that were testing positive were, you know, a good a good proportion of them. A third, maybe more were, you know, were, were asymptomatic because they, they started to record that. So um Whilst we had big numbers of COVID patients in hospital, they probably weren't really COVID patients or are any of them. Um, so it didn't it didn't add up. We're just, you know, the the winter trend is kind of as it always is. Um, so yeah, the people being admitted, it was all pre Christmas. Um, I just thought, well, these are these are just regular patients. Um, they're they're testing positive because you you'd, you'd think that if um, if there was a huge rise in COVID patients, then you'd see a, a similar rise in, in 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 occupancy. I mean, obviously there's a threshold anyway, but it just didn't it didn't make sense. Um, and obviously we know that you can test positive without symptoms. So again, it was um, it was it was manufactured, I think, by the testing um, that they were just quoting these these high numbers, but actually they were just regular patients. But obviously, once you test positive, it's kind of you know, you, you, you're put on a pathway um, or, you you know, you're put in a COVID ward and people probably don't want to come near you. So it's like a death knell for some people, probably. Um, you know, your experience is, is made particularly worse if you if you test positive. Um, you know, we, and we're seeing that now. Uh, anybody who who goes to hospital now, you know, for another condition, if they if they test positive or if they're put on a COVID ward, then, you know, their family can't go and see them. Um, so it just makes your experience worse. You know, you're... If you're if you're sick, you know you're vulnerable. You're elderly. You're you put on a COVID ward, and nobody can come and see you. Then it's just gonna make whatever condition you've got and how you're feeling worse. So it's cruel, really. Um, but it's all and it's all driven by this fear of this invisible pathogen uh, that none of us have seen. <laughs> um, so that yeah, that was the second wave when it started. Um, and yeah, so the numbers and the, the narrative didn't. Quite, didn't quite end up and you I remember um I think it was New Year's Eve there was a, a matron on from 
think it was yeah she was at king's college hospital and she was on the radio um saying oh you know we've got a ward ward full of children with covid so um again just kind of ramping up the fear but you know i thought okay i'm going to look at this immediately i jumped on onto my uh computer like you do looked at the nhs data and i was like this lady's lying there's there's no they don't even have enough children with covid to even fill a ward so and then it later transpired that you know there was that there was a complaint about that and it was upheld that actually was she was te- she was telling fibs so um you know i don't know how you could you could do that and keep your job really um but that's you know um that's what we've kind of been hearing you know through the media the whole time isn't it scare stories and people are prepared to well either they're prepared to lie or they just get caught up in in you know in the waves of, of fear and uh and ride them and, and, and reality narratives. I always ask the question, though. I mean, why would somebody lie like that? If it, you know, you, if you jumped on and you could see that that clearly was false, what, what would motivate that woman to go on the the national media and and lie so blatantly? Yeah, well, I think you know, with with some of these people, I think with her, I think she had. Um, she had some political links. Um, you know, maybe she was a member of one of the political parties. So you just don't know. Um, again, you know, was she, was she asked to do this? Um, you know, I suppose the theory is... to do it. Well, because obviously, you know, the, if the narrative is that the messaging needs to be hard-hitting because we need to control the population. They're not... We can't entrust the population to, to take their own precautions. But obviously, you know... That, that 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 approach was never given a chance, was it? Um, so yeah. that's probably how they would justify it. Um, but yeah, so the you know, so obviously Christmas didn't happen, um, and then we well, depending on where you were, um, you might have had a day out, um, and then and then yeah, children were allowed to go back to school for a day. Uh, again, you know, causing more disruptions of people's lives. And then, then we were put into lockdown again. Um, but it was, and obviously, yeah, it was January where we had the real spike in deaths in, in the second wave. That's where they really kicked off. I mean, there was a bit of a, a bit of a hump starting in sort of November, December, but it was yeah, sort of January mid into mid February where there was a big spike. Um, and this time it was, there were some spikes in, in care homes, but a lot of the deaths were occurring. In hospitals and the second waves, that was you know that was a different characteristic of the second wave. Um, but obviously, that coincided with you know with another public health policy and uh, the rollout of the of the COVID vaccines. Um, different stories um depending on who you listen to so you know the the politicians and the scientists will tell you that the vaccines have saved lives whereas other people will tell you that they've taken lives so um 
it, it just seems too much of a coincidence that we had this spike in deaths that, that occurred with the rollout of this new, this new, um, well, I was going to say license and license, new authorized drug. Um, so that was concerning. Um, but then it was also predictable, to be honest. Um, you know, we, you, we knew that this, this drug that, you know, I think with the Oxford drug, they, um, you know, they, they went on to, you know, I think it was, um, was it you know early early January they you know they they downloaded the the they downloaded the, the, the details of the virus from uh, from the Chinese government which you know obviously nothing to see here um, and then they started to you know develop a vaccine within a weekend and uh, started testing it on people so um, it was always going to be approved or sorry authorized in time you know uh, within a short space of time and it was and you know there were concerns around the, the speed at which it was rolled out. Um, and the, you know the level of of, of, of the trials, uh, the testing that was done with this with this uh, new miracle cure they were calling it. Um, but yeah, the fact that we had a, a rise in deaths at the same time as this drug being being rolled out does raise a lot of questions. But then, you know, they were just labelled as COVID deaths again, weren't they? So um, I'm not well, saying that. Well, was the there a correlation um, when 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 the jab came out? It was given to the uh, elderly and the vulnerable um, at the beginning. But was there yes. a peak in in that in that age group for deaths? Um, I, I guess you know older people are always going to you know more likely to die. Um, you know that's that's a fact of life, isn't it? Um, so in in that second wave, yeah, there were there were excess deaths in the elderly, but there were in some of the the, the lower age bands as well, but then it wasn't just given to the elderly initially. It was also given to you know the clinically vulnerable. Uh, it was also given to frontline health workers. Right. So it could you know it could well be um, that you know well some of them did you know some of those age groups did die in the second wave um, and were labelled as COVID. Um, although you know we've seen that you know the average age of, of a COVID death is. You know, it's higher than the life expectancy, and um, and I think you know. Well, I don't know. It may have changed, but when I looked at it sort of earlier in the year, you know, ninety percent of of COVID deaths in hospital had you know uh, pre-existing conditions. Um, but then you know, some some other analysts have you know done some done some, you know again the data out. They've done some work looking at kind of you know the the trend where you know the, the vaccine was rolled out and just corresponding with that rollout has been has been a rise in, in deaths or rising covid deaths so you know it's no coincidence um as i say i don't believe in coincidences anymore so um but yeah i mean and i remember at the time you know when when the vaccines were authorized um just looking at the trial data i mean it didn't it didn't quite sit right with me um but you know i would never had any reason to to look at um you know, kind of vaccine trial data before this year, to be honest. Um, you know, I'm never, I'm, um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not going to say I'm an anti-vaxxer. I'm, just, I'm not a pro-vaxxer. You know, I don't, I don't, nobody pays me to promote vaccines. I don't go around promoting vaccines. Um, but I just remember looking at the, I think it was the Pfizer one that was authorised first. Um, and the way that they, they sort of, the way they, they obviously had to, had to achieve over 50% efficacy to be to get authorization um but i think that you know each, each the placebo group the vaccine group was say around 20,000 people um and 
I think, yeah, in the placebo group, I think they they had like 162 patients who uh, participants who 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 became infected. But again, the definition of infected was using a PCR test and maybe having a symptom. And then in the vaccine group, it was eight. So we're we're kind of a, we're authorizing this drug on a very small sample, and we're literally you know less than 200 people that have have uh, have had symptoms, and we're we're doing a mathematical calculation based on these numbers um to so yeah so from the from the placebo group and and the vaccine group you've got less than one percent having symptoms and they basically what they do is they subtract one percentage from the other um and then divide the two so you're dividing like 0.7 percent over like 0.74 percent and that gives you 95 percent so and that's your and that's called the relative risk reduction this is getting a bit technical um and that's how they that's how they uh, approve all vaccines, I think, or a lot of vaccines. It's just it's kind of it's it's, it's number tricks really that they're using. Um, whereas when they come to look at the the side effects, they use a they use a different measure, which is the absolute risk reduction. So using the same numbers from those trials, you would calculate the absolute risk reduction of this of this of this um, vaccine as being 0.7 percent. But that's not going to sell, is it? If you tell somebody that this vaccine is going to give you you know improve your chances of, of getting symptoms by 0.7%, it's not really going to sell. Um, and then likewise, I think in the Oxford one, in the in the placebo group, one person died, whereas in the vaccine group, nobody died. So they take that one and that zero, and they say, this drug is 100% effective at, at preventing death based on one person. <laughs> but this is the narrative that they roll out. Um, obviously, that narrative is now crumbling, Um but it's yeah, it's very it's very shaky ground that, that they're working on. But that's that's how vaccines got approved. Um, but obviously, we, you know, we've seen since then um, over the sort of last year, the last sort of few months, the you know people who have people who've died of COVID or tested positive um, that have been double vaccinated, and um, you know the case rates for for the vaccinated is a lot higher than the unvaccinated. But then this is where people will use their statistical tricks to say, oh, well, if you, you know, if you look at the, the rate per 100,000, um, it's actually, it's actually higher in this group. It's, it's, it's higher in the unvaccinated. So, um, but I suppose the bottom line is, you know, this, the, the way that this vaccine was sold to people, it's, it's not, you know, it's not living up to the billing. And um, I don't remember, you know, them saying at the start, you know, you, you know, once you've had it, you know, the, the effectiveness will wane after a period of time. And then, and then you have to have, you know, a top up. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, if you're buying, if you're buying this product, you'd want, you'd want a refund. Um, so, yeah, very, very shaky science. I, I don't, I don't trust their science ultimately um, because it just doesn't, it doesn't seem very scientific. Um, but yeah, and also, um, you know, we're, we're hearing all these numbers around, you know, number, you know, number of deaths within 28 days. For positive tests but we're you know it took a long time and you really have to dig to get any data around the number of you know the number of deaths following the vaccine um so obviously there's, there's the um there's a self-reporting yellow card system um which you know if you look at those numbers um you've got you know over a million adverse reactions reported in this country um you know nearly two thousand deaths and that you know the belief is that at best, you might get 10% of the reports there. Um, 
So that in itself is, is alarming, but we don't hear about that. And anybody who tries to quote it, um, you know, it's called a conspiracy theorist or, or, or when the data suits them, they'll use it. When it doesn't suit them, they'll say, oh, this data is not verified. But, you know, if you're, if you're the MHRA and you're being told that, you know, 1,700 people have died after taking this drug, then, then it's your duty to verify this. But obviously it's not, it's not convenient, is it? Um, but I think, yeah, I think it was Public Health Scotland that re- they released some data um, in the middle of this year around the number of, I think it was the yeah, number of deaths within 28 days of a vaccine. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean they died from the vaccine, but obviously it's using the same approach that we use for COVID and PCR tests. Um, and they'd, they'd reported maybe nearly 4,000 people. And I, I thought, well, if we, you know, if we extrapolate this for the UK, for England, then, you know, we, we would have, we could easily have 40,000 deaths within 28 days of the vaccine because also we've administered more. Um, and then they did finally re- release some information, although they, they used a different uh, definition. I think it was deaths within 21 days and, it was, I think it was 30,000. So I think this year we've had, um, we've probably had half as many excess deaths so far this year as last year. And it probably tallies with that number of deaths within 28 days of a vaccine. Although interesting, also interestingly, um, we've had nearly as many COVID deaths this year. So so when they say, oh, you know, we've, this vaccine has saved 100,000 lives, I'm not seeing that anywhere because more people are still dying. And nearly as many people are still dying of COVID. So um, they can't back up these claims. I'd, I'd, li- I'd, I'd like to see how they how they can make these claims um, because it's not there in the numbers. So, you know, they're just forever telling fibs, ultimately. Um, so I, at this point, I'm, I don't understand how anybody would trust the word they say because they constantly lie. Um, do you, you know that Dr. Hillary on uh, Good Morning Britain on ITV? Yes, unfortunately, I'm aware of him, yes. Yeah. Well, just just today I, I saw that um, I think The Sun did a headline because he said last week that um, the yellow card reporting scheme was fake news or something along those yes. lines. And it's yes. just like, how can you go on to a programme like that and, and, and just lie again? It's just lies, isn't it? Yes, yeah, lies on top of lies, um, you know, double speak, um, you know, contradictive narrative. Um, and I, I don't know whether it just it confuses people and in, in their state of fear, um, they'll just do, the, the, you know, they'll just follow the, the easiest option or do as they're told. I just, yeah, it's hard to get your head around, really. Um, you kind of, people, you, you know, who I once knew just... Um, just seem like different people as a result of, what, of what's happened. Um, it's unfortunate, but yes, um, I'm aware of that. Uh, and also, I don't know if you, if you saw recently um, the article in the British Medical Journal around the person who worked for the research company on the vaccine trials for the Pfizer, um, the whistleblower, saying that you know that they'd falsified the data and they hadn't followed up some of the group and the um, the adverse reactions. So that yeah, again. It, it raises big questions around these vaccines and the way that the trials were conducted and um, and approved. So, you know, do, do you think know. it could be considered that the, the BMJ is one of the preeminent medical journals in in the world? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, certainly in Britain. Um, yeah, they're well respected, definitely. Um, not that we shouldn't question, you know, who funds them and 
so again, no, you're, it's, it, you, it was surprising that this came out, and it, initially it didn't it didn't hit the headlines any uh, in the mainstream, but I think it has kind of creeped into a few papers. But you know, there's not much noise about it, so because obviously it's, it's an inconvenient truth, um, and you know, any inconvenient truths are suppressed. So, or I don't know. It's just again like this this Wuhan narrative has come back again. Now it's convenient because it reinforces this narrative of of there being a killer virus, um, which, I mean, again, you know, I'm not a virologist. Uh, I'm not a biomedical scientist. I mean, like yourself, I'm a social scientist. And I think, I think more of us need to have a voice in this, in this madness. Um, but, um, you know, another thing that, that I've looked at and that, and it was another sort of light bulb moment for me was, um, you know, just some of the, the theories around, around viruses and, and, and what makes people ill. So um, I don't know if you've looked at this yourself, but because we, you know, obviously we're taught from a young age that, you know, that, that colds and flus are contagious and you catch them from people. Um, but it's it's odd that, you know, the same member of your household get ill, but not, not everybody gets ill. Um, how do you actually catch a cold? How do you, how do you prove transmission? Um, even with COVID, like, you know, you and I could, we could go away for the weekend together and, uh, we could both get ill, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we've caught we've caught the illness from each other, does it? It could well be that, you know, that we we were in, you know, we we're both in the same, you know, we're in the same environment. That's that's consistent. Maybe we we both ate something or drank something that that didn't agree with us and made us ill. So, um, and and because of people like myself not following the rules, <laughs> you know, not following the narrative, living life as normally as possible. You know, um, you see all these people on on the marches together. You know, hundred, literally hundreds of thousands of people. Although the press don't want you to know this, um, but no subsequent spike in illnesses. Um, but obviously, the people that attend these things are less likely to, you know, um, go and get tested. They're not going to wear a mask. But if if there is this deadly disease, then why these mass events where people are together? Why is there not a spike in, in people getting sick? Exactly. Because well. What is making people ill? What is this new illness? So, um, so this is another thing I've, you know, I've looked into, um, you know, this whole germ theory, and um, you know, when you when you kind of dig under the surface, you find that you know a lot of these viruses that that they've created vaccines for have never been proven to exist or, or cause disease. So, um, you know, I looked into this, and actually, because I sort of went, I went all of last year looking at looking at the numbers, looking at the narrative, none of it adding up. And then this was like a light bulb moment when actually I discovered that the theory that actually it's not the presence of a virus doesn't mean that it's the cause of disease. It's the, it's the effect. Um, so this, this SARS-CoV-2 virus has never been, it's never been proven to exist or cause or cause illness. So, um, so there is a narrative and I think it's, it's one that needs to be explored more that actually, it's not viruses that make you ill it's it's actually more environmental factors um you know things within the individual so like you know you know your stress levels your your diet your your environment um you know chemicals in the water in the air um your exposure to you know electromagnetic frequencies and um and that they're the things that actually make you ill um and that you know a virus or whatever we we believe to be a virus we you know we're told that a virus can't it can't survive outside of a cell so how 
how does a virus tra- you know transmit from one person to the next of it you know if it can't live outside of the body um and actually you know when you get a cold when you get flu it's just it's your body to- detoxifying you know um it's kind of it's excreting dead cell matter because your body is becoming toxic through through all these stress factors and environmental factors um so you know there's people that you know the nurses some of the nurses i've spoken to who you know work through this period who haven't worn a mask haven't done any of this nonsense and they haven't been sick so it it kind of when i when i sort of started to look at these these theories um and there's some well there's some good you know it's hard to know who to trust uh who's got a platform but there's some some really good doctors um there's a doctor called tom cowan um who who wrote a book called the contagion myth although i think it was banned from amazon he had to he had to rename it and that's um that's a really good book and he does a lot of really good um seminars and stuff where he talks about this in great detail um and one of his virologist uh friends stefan lanker has has done has done some recent tests um that basically prove that 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 if you whether you you know what you add to your your cell cultures, you know, whether you add a virus or whether you don't, or whether you add like excretion from a sick person, the actual nature of the, the test, whether the 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 virus the virus is there or not, you will still get the same outcome. So it's actually the the process that produces the the evidence of of there being a virus, not actually the virus itself. So I think he um, not wanted to go into too much detail, but like I think he, you know he offered he offered a reward of a um, hundred thousand euros to anybody who could prove that the measles virus existed and i think somebody you know found some research papers made a claim against him and they won but then he took it to the supreme court and actually he won um so even things like you know the measles virus um has never actually been proven to exist or cause disease so this is fairly earth-shattering after 100 years of of, um virology narrative um so again this yeah yeah yeah, so obviously that shatters well I wouldn't say it shatters the COVID narrative because I'd say it reinforces the narrative that that there is no new well there's no new killer virus that's killing that's that's harming people there's no if there is a new disease that that actually it's not caused by a virus if there are new symptoms um, that are making people ill that it that actually it's it's probably more likely to be some you know environmental um, factor. Um, I mean, with, you know, with Wuhan, um, that, you know, they, I think that was the first city in the world to, you know, they blanketed the city with 5G. And obviously anybody who mentions 5G from the start um, was called a conspiracy theorist. Um, But, 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 you know, things like 5G, you know, I don't think it's really compatible with health. Um, So, but then obviously there was this narrative of, you know, 5G, People are saying that five, the virus is spread by 5G. Well, no, obviously that's nonsense. Um, but the presence of this new technology could actually cause these symptoms that are flu-like symptoms, because it's, you know, if it's poisoning your body, um, then your body's going to try and detoxify and it's going to cause your body to have these flu-like symptoms. Um, so all these, and and we found. In the last year, a lot of these so-called conspiracy theories have, you know, have either come true or proven to be right. So I think it'll be foolhardy to discount them. Um, and there is, a, you know, there's a body of evidence. Um, there's a, you know, group of doctors and scientists that that support this um, this theory, uh, this ter- terrain theory, I suppose it's called. Um, 
and I think there's another there's another interesting book. Um, I think it's called The Invisible Rainbow, which looks which um, looks That's at uh, the different yeah the different Arthur um, Fitzenberg yeah Arthur Fitzenberg yes the different um, pandemics that have occurred even like the the Spanish flu and how it coincided with the the use of radio waves and how, you know yeah so I don't know it it's a compelling story um, who are we to believe um, but it kind of it makes more sense to me just with, with what's happened in, over the last year so I've kind of I've got to that stage where I just believe that everything has been it's an illusion you know this experience has all been an illusion it's all been created for well I, I don't know I don't want to know really what the motives are but obviously we've seen the impact of of, of what's happened um the last year and a half and it's you know for some people it's been devastating people have died but they've not died as a result of a virus that I don't believe exists or is the cause of illness. It, the thing that has harmed people is the response, um, you know, and um, there's another, I think it's a, a physicist from, from Canada, Denis Ranku. He's done a lot of look, he's done a lot of research and analysis of excess deaths and morbidity across the world. And he's come up with the same view that, that actually what we're seeing is, is harms as a result of, of, of public health policy, uh, government responses to this so-called pandemic. Um, so yeah, I, I suppose I, I now look at things through that lens. Um, so I've kind of I've come on a journey, and I you know I, I say that COVID nineteen is, is an ideology and not a disease. Um, it's a, it's a belief system really, um, and it's being used. It's a political tool to to push through an agenda. Um, to change and the fabric it, of society, isn't it? Well, it's trying to. Um, it's trying to, but it's you know, if we look at if we look at the, I mean, if we bring things up to date and look at the, you know, situation in in hospitals now and in healthcare, um, you know, the health system is overwhelmed, and we're we're only just coming into winter. Um, and again, because obviously my role involves looking, at, you know, I'm familiar with all the different measures. Um, if we just look at the, you know, the the patient pathway, you know, at every step there's problems. You know, you can't get access to your GP, so people are more likely to go to A and E. Or if you go to A and E, that you know you're going to wait longer. The number of people waiting to, for a bed, you know, it's never been so bad. Um, and you know, there's delays with ambulances because um, you know they can't offload patients because there's a delay in A and E. Um, and now with the, the vaccine mandates, the impact that's having on already had on care homes, um, and plus the fact that you know people who work in care homes are, are probably fatigued, stressed after the experience they've had. They can earn more money doing an easier job elsewhere. So care homes aren't necessarily accepting patients because they haven't got the capacity. That's causing a backlog um, in discharging patients. So the system is really struggling now. And on top of that. You know, we've got the longest waiting list we've ever had with, um, you know, nearly six million people waiting for treatment. Um, so, you know, I'm amazed that they haven't, you know, they haven't announced another lockdown. I don't want to tempt fate, but, you know, the or certainly their plan B, because the health system is, is struggling. And obviously the, the people that suffer are the vulnerable and the elderly. Um, 
you know, the infirm. And so, you know, with and again, we're seeing we're seeing a rise in excess deaths again now um, over the last sort of few months. Um, but it's not COVID, nor that it ever was COVID, um, and that's alarming. Um, I think in yeah, in the summer we had, you know, there was a peak in, in people attending any, but again, you know, what's the cause of that? It's, you know, some people said there was a heat wave, or there wasn't a heat wave. Um, well, I don't, I don't remember seeing a heat wave. Um, no, do I? Yeah. Um, and, and it could be a combination of factors. It could be that um, you know people that have been waiting a long time for treatment, you know, suddenly go to hospital. But I don't know. Like, do they wait till that they're allowed out of lockdown before they? then go to hospital with their illness i don't doesn't quite add up if you're really ill you go to hospital um and obviously we you know we're hearing we're hearing all these anecdotal stories and you know from on social media from friends um in the local press not so much in the mainstream press of you know people people having heart attacks um we're seeing sportsmen collapse on the field um you know spectators you know fo- football matches being halted for spectators, you know, falling ill in the stadium. Um, all these incidents is happening that, okay, so obviously our antenna are up. We're looking out for these things, but I don't remember these things happening. So we're seeing excess deaths. What's causing it? And obviously a lot of people, you know, the, the alternative narrative is, the alternative news is saying this this is a result of the vaccine, of adverse reactions to the vaccine. Um but whatever it is, it's it's caused by you know the failure of public health and the response to this manufactured crisis. It's the effects are devastating for people, um, whether it be they're injured from the vaccine or they've died from the vaccine. And you know we've had a few cases where coroners have, have yeah coroners have, have confirmed that people have died as a result of the vaccine. So. There's no denying that it's happening. The you know the yellow card data is people are reporting it and it's underreporting. Um, so how you know why is this why is this vaccine not been halted or you know why are we giving it to children when we know it can harm people? And and the thing the question I ask if the science is so great, why can't they tell us you know who's who's at risk from the vaccine? Who's most likely to have an adverse reaction? You know before I go and take the vaccine, can you? You know, can you look at my health profile? Can you tell me whether I'm at risk? They don't do that, do they? And like, they can't tell you. I mean, they might say, you know, there's a rare case that maybe if you're if you've got certain allergies or if you suffer from anaphylaxis, um, you know, as a result of allergies, then you shouldn't take the vaccine. But they don't, you know, they don't they won't tell you. You know, you might um, you might suffer from myocarditis, which you know which we're told is a, an extremely rare side effect, but it's not that rare because it seems to be cropping up, you know, regularly. So um, it's very alarming and I don't know where it's going to end really, um, what's going to stop it. Normally, you know, um, it takes something really bad to happen for for things to change, but it seems like bad things are happening every day. <laughs> and and, and the, juggernaut, the, the COVID juggernaut carries on. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if you have any pearls of wisdom. Well, you know, obviously, winter's just beginning now, isn't it? And maybe we should have another chat when spring comes about and you could tell us 
your experiences of of seeing how this winter is going to pan out because there's some people that are quite concerned about this winter, aren't there? And then, you know, you hear so, some yeah. stuff in the mainstream media as well. That, oh, everything's going to be all right by January. So, um, yeah, I think we definitely need to have another chat, though, Dom. It's been, we've gone over an it's hour. It's been a yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, it's been fascinating, yeah. There's one last question I wouldn't mind asking you, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, far away. Um, obviously, the, the news yesterday, the day before, about NHS frontline workers um, being mandated to take this jab. I mean, how do you feel about that? Is it going to affect you? Is it going to affect people, you know, your colleagues, other people that you know? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh, um, and again, it's it's one that defies common sense that, um, you know, the the system that's struggling and the system that's supposed to be there to to protect the people that are at risk from this from this imaginary virus um, are the ones that we're putting pressure on. So we kind of we've gone from heroes to villains um, in the short space of time. Not that we were ever heroes, um, but no. I mean, the, the role that I do. I mean, obviously, the guidance needs to come out. It still needs to be voted through in Parliament, which I think is a foregone conclusion. Um, my my current role is not because I don't work in hospital at the moment. It's not patient facing. So. Um, I'm not going to say my role is safe because I don't think any of us are safe. Um, but yes, I do know colleagues that, you know, uh, that work with patients, um, you know, whether it be nurses or doctors. And obviously, you know, we, it was a foregone conclusion. And I said this, um, you know, when they, when they voted it in, uh, when they announced it was going to be introduced for care homes, I said to my colleagues, you know, this, this is a slippery slope and, um, it's a foregone conclusion, really, that, that it'll be introduced to the NHS next and people will leave. Um, I mean, I did say including myself, but I don't I don't say anybody should leave because you shouldn't, you know, feel forced to to leave your job um, over this and you should stand your ground. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, again, it's another nonsensical policy from this from this government. Um, and, you know, you can't. You, well, you can't legally force somebody to to uh, to to take a to have a medical intervention. So um, obviously they, they'll have to find other ways of of, um, of of enforcing it. And there's obviously there's going to be a lot of coercion. Um, and they don't, you know, they're not saying it's a condition of employment. They're saying it's a condition of deployment. But if you're if you're um, well, I suppose if you're a frontline worker, you could go and do clinical audits. But um, but yeah, obviously the guidance needs, guidance needs to come out, but but it's, I've been quite heartened by um, the camaraderie of, of of my colleagues that are against the mandates, whether they be jabbed or un, unjabbed. Um, that you know they're they're coming together and they do want to push back, um, and rightfully so. And I think um, you know the people that that came out and clapped on their doorstep should also be coming out and defending these people, the people that have. Um, you know, looked after their sick relatives. Some better than others. Um, you know, some well, some may be unwillfully um, or unwillingly, sorry, complicit in in the mistreatment of patients by enforcing you know some of the rules and treatments in hospitals. And um, but again, you know, I think a lot of them are victims to to the COVID narrative. Yeah. So, well, I don't know it's well, it's not ironic that you know that's going to be. By April the first, you know, all these dates seem to have meaning. You know, the um, the yeah. 
care home mandate came in on armistice day that the nhs one is gonna in theory once they once they do vote it in, which they will is the first of april so it's almost like you know they're it feels at times it feels like you know they're laughing at us really um and they must be because so many people have fallen for this um this false narrative this is just another example but Hopefully, uh, you know, I, I'd like, I want to end on an optimistic note and, you know, say it's a, it's a watershed moment and more people are, are, are I don't want to say waking up because that is that term's used a lot, but becoming more aware um, and conscious of the deception, really. Uh, it is a mass deception that, you know, that they've tried to to roll out on everybody. Um, so, yeah, hopefully more people become wise and, and push back because that's what we need to uh, to stop this because that's the only way it's gonna it's good things are gonna change um and you know I, I don't say this to be a contrarian i don't i don't say this to to cause division because that's obviously that's happening uh it's you know it's dividing families um you know i just want i don't i just want people not to to live in fear um of their fellow humans like that's that's what it's come to um you know that isn't that isn't why we were put on this earth uh, that's not how we're gonna we're going to thrive as a society. We shouldn't. We sh- We shouldn't be told that we have to fear our fellow man, um, and that's what we've been told. So, I think yeah, unity is the only way that we're going to overcome this. So, yeah. Wise words. Wise words to finish yeah. with. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for that, Dom. That was uh, that was fantastic. And yeah, just stand firm. This uh, I think it's going to be a crazy winter. Next year is going to be extremely interesting. And yeah, if we could have another chat, I say, and maybe when spring comes about and just see what's gone on over the last few months, that, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always, always good to talk. Yeah. Brilliant. Right. Well, yes. you take care and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Yeah. Nice chatting. Thanks, Dom. Bye. Well, there you go, people. That was Dom's story. He's an NHS manager. Fascinating to hear what somebody feels who's been on the inside of the managerial side of, of, of hospitals and trust within London and the South East. You know, what the things I really took from this was, you know, we started by saying that the contracts were being awarded before the lockdown actually occurred, you know. And then at the beginning of it all, clearing 30,000 beds from the hospitals to care homes, private homes and hotels even. And he said this is unheard of, never been heard of. And that wave of patients that were supposed to fill the hospitals after they cleared them never arrived. 50% less patients to A&E during that time. Hospitals were half full. The average year, so let's take 2019, you know, and he, he said that, you know, some of the hospitals, it was literally 98, 99% full at his hospital. That was obviously the year before this pandemic. And now then during the lockdown, there was a 60% bed occupancy over the lockdown. I mean, this is just not what we were being told through the media, is it? Lots of staff went off sick, but their shifts were never filled by agency or bank staff because there weren't the volume of patients that needed the extra staff. And then 
with the, the result of that first wave, the biggest proportion of deaths were in the care homes and private homes. So everybody had been shifted out of the hospitals and they were just left to die in these care homes and at home. And again, Dom's telling us that there was no excess deaths in the five-year average beforehand until the lockdown started. And the lockdown started at the end of March 2020. So this virus was running rampant. And as I said, I think that me and my family had it in that December 2019. But there weren't any excess deaths until the lockdown started. He believes that the lockdown was the cause of the excess deaths. There weren't excess deaths, they were accelerated deaths. And the sobering point that he makes is that the government, the government would have been aware of this. And then when people were in these care homes and in the hospitals, there was a dramatic increase in do not resuscitate orders. And then the thresholds for these do not resuscitate orders were lowered. So again, we're playing, not we, they're playing with the figures. You know, tweak it here, tweak it there, and more people die. Then he goes into the midazolam story, which is a drug that suppresses the respiratory system. And how are we supposed to be giving this to people? Why the fuck would you give that to someone with a problem with their respiratory system? He said that there was an increase in prescriptions of 200 plus percent around that time and again he mentions the ventilators which we were all hailed at the beginning that we need more ventilators we need more ventilators but the ventilators ended up killing people as well one thing that we did kind of knuckle down on was the changing of definitions and the changing of protocols you know, they've been manipulating everything all along. So something that would have been stable for the last decade or, or two or three, four decades, suddenly when you start changing the definitions of the way that information is recorded, you get a different result. And the conclusions are obviously way different to what would normally be normal. He then tells us about Things like the Rockefeller lockstep document, 10 years before all of this stuff happened. You should look into it, it's, it's out there. And event 201, I, I covered some of this in episode one of this podcast, how it's just very convenient that a big multi-corporation event such as that occurs just before this pandemic and they're planning how to deal with a pandemic such as this. Is it coincidence? He then goes on to question the validity of the PCR tests, the false positive rate, and that the virus had never been, has never been isolated. So what is it they, they are actually testing for? 
we also, if, if you look into Kerry Mullis, who was the Nobel Prize winning inventor of the PCR test, you know, he, he stated publicly that this should never be, this test should never be used to determine a viral load. And is it a coincidence again? Again, we don't believe in coincidences that he dies a year before all of this shit starts happening. The one guy who would have been quite outspoken about the failures of this test, and he dies at a relatively young age. Then we finally get on to the vaccines. The second wave of deaths that has been occurring also coincides with the introduction of an experimental gene therapy. This is the one denominating factor that we can attribute to a rise in deaths. But nobody, no doctors, no government officials are willing to even ask the question, could it be the vaccines that are causing death? I just want to, like, say this. This is... um. Uh, this is a quote from one of his articles that, that he wrote. Um, he's published quite a few for the expose and they're all available on his website and I'll give you the details to that very soon. But this is the quote. The vaccines were initially hailed as a miracle of science. However, it later transpired that the vaccines are not able to stop transmission of the virus or prevent recipients from having COVID-19 symptoms. They quoted 90 plus percent efficacy of the vaccine was based on the relative risk reduction between the vaccine trial cohorts, whereas a more accurate but less convenient measure is the absolute risk reduction, which is less than 1% for the Pfizer vaccine and just under 2% for the Oxford vaccine. Again, we just go into the manipulation of data and statistics in order to make something that is pretty shit sound pretty good. It's just questionable the way that these vaccines have been approved. He even mentions that there was an article in the BMJ of the Pfizer whistleblower and the whistleblower says how these trolls have been thoroughly manipulated. Then after that, Don gets into germ theory versus terrain theory. What is it that we are actually getting ill from? It's fascinating questions. But this was a great interview, really enjoyed it, and we will be doing another one next spring let's see what happens this winter we've all got bated breath about what might happen and at the end of the day the figures don't lie if we come back in spring and there's more deaths that have occurred then that's the data that honestly truly counts so to find out more about dom and his website go to casualtiesoflockdown.com it's it's very good website there if you scroll down to the bottom you can see his articles and he pins them under the name of covid 007 they include the real covid 19 pandemic or plandemic uh, 
COVID moral panic, searching for COVID-19 and the case against mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations. They're all very good and you can find out more about Dom and his colleagues there. Thanks for listening and I will see you next time. Take care out there. Bye. If we do this, eh, if we continue the mass vaccination, we continue to boost, we don't do anything about the infectious pressure, we immunize all the children. I mean, if that is not going to be a catastrophe, you can put me in jail. I'd say that COVID-19 is an ideology and not a disease. is that now people can push symbols out to millions with the click of the button, promoting myths as fact. In this post-truth world, where does that leave us? Where do we draw the line between respecting the beliefs of others and calling bullshit? You can put me in jail. about how safe the vaccine is unless you start giving it. Yeah, that's just the way it goes. You can put me in jail. Uh, Tony, yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, 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 to, to Peppa Pig World. If I am sure of anything, Inspector Finch, it is that this government will not survive and it will be subject to your feelings. Mr. Asker, what we need right now is a clear message to the people of this country. This message must be read in every newspaper, heard on every radio, seen on every television. This message must resound throughout the entire internet. I want this country to realize that we stand on the edge of oblivion. I want every man, woman, and child to understand how close we are to chaos. I want I now look at things through that lens. So I've kind of I've come on a journey, and I, you know, I, I say that COVID-19 is, is an ideology and not a disease. It's a, it's a belief system, really, and it's being used as a political tool to to push through an agenda.